We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. Grab your, your Bible and let's go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 4 through 9. Uh, these are verses we've read the last couple of weeks. If you've been with us, if you didn't bring your Bible, it's okay. We have uh, the, the, the words on the screen here. But Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting at verse 4. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit at your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and, you shall, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So here's what we've been wrestling with in this series. We have been looking at this biblical mandate that we have as the people of God, the covenant community, to, to invest our lives to imparting uh, God's truth to the next generation, to pass on our faith to the next generation. And we've been talking about the fact that this is a partnership between the home and the local church, that we are the covenant community working together to see the, the faith passed on to the next generation. And, and that happens through the home and the home engaging in the local church and the, and the church investing in uh, those within the home, providing resources for mom and dad, providing ministries for children and preschool and, and, and our student ministry so that what is being imparted at the house of a Christian home is being reinforced and built upon and being supplemented by what they're getting here. This is one of the reasons we're looking at uh, th this expansion in Gilmer. We're wanting to expand our facilities, providing uh, more space so that we can continue to be a resource for families, to reach families for Jesus and to help come alongside mom and dad in investment. This is why we're looking at renovating our old worship uh, uh, center and, uh, and our, our edge building so that we can provide uh, ministry space for high school and junior high ministry because we believe this is a partnership between the home and the church. And as the church, we want to do our part to being sure that we're providing what is needed for the families as you engage in the body of Christ so that we together can see the faith passed on to the next generation. What we've seen, though, this morning in the text is this truth. And this is where we're going to kind of be this morning, that the primary location of discipleship and evangelism of the next generation should be within the homes of Christian families. That parents and grandparents have the primary responsibility of passing on their faith to the next generation. That the church cannot be a substitute, rather a supplement. That this is the responsibility of the home, that we as parents and grandparents, we should understand that God has called us to be the primary disciple makers, that, that our home should be the number one place that we're evangelizing and that we're discipling. 
And I'll illustrate it like this. My wife and I, we, we moved into a house uh, that we're living in now about a year ago, and we spent the previous year uh, building our house. And I, I did something I've never done. I decided that we we're going to build our house on our own. And so we did that, and we're now in it, and we're excited. So when people come over, they'll ask me the question, hey, who built your home? Who built your house? And I, I'm always answering kind of pridefully, like, I built it. I built this home. And so they look at me like I'm crazy, and they'll say, did you say you built the home? I'm like, yeah, I built the home. Like, you, you built the home? And I'm like, I'm a preacher, but I'm not dumb, all right? I'm, like, I can do other things. And, uh, and then they'll ask this question, so you're telling me you, you built this house? And I'm like, that's what I'm telling you. And they'll say, so you nailed the boards together, you put the roof on, you painted the walls, you hung the sheetrock, you ran the electrical, you did all the plumbing, you built this house. And I'm like, well, no, I didn't do all of that. And they're like, so you didn't build your house. I'm like, no, I did. I subcontracted it out. I was the overseer that subbed it out. They said, so you didn't build your house. I'm like, apparently not. I'm a moron. I should have never said that. <laughs> so we have this conversation and here, here is the point. There's two ways of looking at this. There's there's those that, that build the house with their own hands and they're putting the structure together. And then there are those who sub the work out to have the house. So let me just correct myself. I was a general contractor for my home that subbed it out to be built. All right. So let's just be technical here. But here's the reality. Listen to me. Moms and dads, grandparents, look at me. There is no subcontractor for the raising of your children. You cannot sub that out. You cannot just say, I'm going to kind of manage this thing, and then I'm going to get some professionals involved, so I'm going to bring them to the church, and I'm going to connect them to a small group, and I'm going to do these things, and I'm going to send them there for about 45 minutes uh, uh, in, in a classroom on Sunday morning, and they're going to have some hang time, and then Wednesday night, if we can get it in our schedule, we're going to be there, and we'll do some camps along the way, and then when it's all said and done, because, man, I'm putting them in this place, I'm going to sub this thing out, that I'm going to have spiritual champions when I'm done. You cannot sub this out. Now, the church should be an aid to you to come along your side as you are building spiritual children, building your home according to God's word. We should be a resource for you. We should come and help you. And yes, we do have professionals that really know how to invest in the next generation, but they are there to be a supplement to come along your side, not to be the substitute for what is your responsibility. And here's the reality. Here's what I know in this room. I know that for the majority of you, you, you want this. You want to see your kids come to know Jesus. How many of you want to see your kids, grandkids, nephews, nieces become spiritual giants? Say amen to that. We want that, right? And here's a couple of things that I want you to know. First is this. You need to know that while it is your responsibility to pass on your faith to the next generation, you cannot make them respond to the gospel or fall in love with Jesus. You can't do that. Your job is to point them that direction, to move the needle that direction, to, to, to teach God's word and to model God's word and to show them the beauty of Christ, to point them to the glory of the gospel so that they can marvel at who he is. But here's the thing. You cannot transform their heart. All you can do is put them in an environment that cultivates a heart for Jesus, but it's, it's the Holy Spirit that steps in and ignites their heart so that they love him, follow him, pursue him, and know him. So I need you to take, some of you take the pressure off and realize that your job is to foster an environment 
where Jesus is the hero, where his word is the foundation, where the truth of, of what he has for our life is better than what the world offers, and they see it modeled in your life so that in time, as you plead with Jesus to transform and do what you cannot do in the hearts of your kids, you're pleading with him until that happens, you're just begging God, and at some point, the Holy Spirit's going to step in, and they're going to make them alive in Christ, and then, now that you have saved children, you're going to foster in them and, and, and pursue their heart in a way that disciples them toward walking with Jesus. Are you with me? So we've got to understand our responsibility, but our responsibility has limitations, and we've got to, that's why we've got to be desperate for Jesus to work and do the things that we cannot do on our own. Here's the, the second thing that I, I know. I know that while many of us in this room, the st studies tell us that between 85 and 90 percent of Christian homes believe that it is their responsibility to pass on their faith to the next generation and want that to happen, that on average, most Christian homes spend less than 30 minutes a week actually having spiritual conversations. So what we say we want and what we're doing with our time are not lining up. And I think much of this is because parents don't feel equipped to do this. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look at this passage of Scripture, and I want to give you four statements that we glean here that I believe will help you begin to make the right investment, give you the framework needed to make the right investment in the hearts of your kids to help foster an environment where your kids can come to know the Lord and to be in an environment where they are, they are ready and when the Holy Spirit steps in and awakens their heart and as God works in their life, they're in a great position um, to know Him and to pursue Him and to walk with Him. If you're, if you're with me, say, I'm with you. All right, four of you are with me. Thank you. The rest of you will wake you up when we're done. All right. Um, so let me give you four statements that come from this passage that I think will help us. Here's number one. Write this down if you're taking notes. The essence of Christianity is not duty driven by law, but devotion motivated by love. And this is important that we get this. That the essence of Christianity is not duty driven by law, but devotion motivated by love. Look what he says in verse four again. He says, hear, O Israel, this is the Shema. This is the most important scripture for the Jewish community in all of the Bible. It's, it's here. It's not just here. It's here with the intent of obeying. It's not just hear the words. It's lean in so that you can hear them and then walk them out in your life. So he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All of your heart. With how much of your soul? All of your soul. With how much of your might? All of your might. This is the essence. This is what Moses is communicating. He's saying this is the essence of what God desires from his people. Now, God is going to give his people commands. He gives the Ten Commandments. He gives other commandments. Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to see the commands of the Lord. Throughout the Scriptures, you're going to see what he expects of his people. So there are rules and there are commands. But the core of what God wants for us is not just that we would, out of duty, fulfill the commands but rather out of desire be devoted to him because we love him. That this is the desire. This is what his aim for us is, that we would be fully devoted to him, follow his commands because we love him with all of who we are. This is the essence of Christianity. I want you to think about this. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, was asked this question. Many of you know this passage of Scripture. He was asked a simple question. So look what he says in verse number 36. He's a teacher of the law. This is a man coming, asking Jesus, Teacher, which is the, great, is the great commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment of all that God has? What's the greatest? And Jesus says in verse 37, And he said to him, see if this sounds familiar, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, 
with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, just let this sink in for a moment. This, this guy comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What's the first commandment? What's the, and the word great here, the word first, some of your translations have the word first of all the commands. It's the Greek word protos. It's where we get our English word priority. So think about the question. Of all the rules, of all the commands, of all the things that God has called us to do, Jesus, we want to know your opinion. What is the priority? What is the highest on God's list? Of all the things he wants us to do, what would be number one on the list for God? And this is the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and he says, You want to know the greatest thing that God has for you? It is to love him. It is to know him. It is to recognize that there is one God, you belong to him, and that you would be devoted to him all the days of your life and every part of your life. You see, this is massive that we understand this, that what God wants from us is not just this duty-driven obedience, but rather hearts that are singularly devoted to him as the great love of our life. And because of this, we walk in obedience to him. So listen, if you're here today and you think the essence of Christianity is following a bunch of rules or obeying a bunch of commands, you've missed the heart of God. And, and you listen, and so will your kids if this is what you're teaching. This is not what God wants. He wants to be at the center of our affection, emotion, and devotion. It's about relationship. It's about our doing, listen to this, flowing from our loving. I'll illustrate it like this. I've, I've kind of talked about this before. Some of y'all may know that, that I'm very clued in on my wife's love language is languages. She, there are several things that say I love you to my wife, but there's some primary ways in which my wife feels loved by me. And I've kind of used this before, but like, so uh, my wife, when, when, if I send her roses, if I send her roses, my wife is grateful. Like Friday, Valentine's Day, I went and bought some roses and I took them to her classroom at her school and walked in. Of course, the kids are always, oh, Miss Connie's got roses. That's so sweet. So I bring them in and I set them there with a card and, and she's, she's immediately, I mean, she wasn't in the room at the time. And so I, I set them in there and uh, she immediately texts me. She's like, thank you so much. You, you're, the, you're the greatest husband ever. Just you're so awesome. And I'm like, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Don't ever forget that. <laughs> and now, so that she feels so loved. Now, if I were to go in and help her clean the kitchen or surprise her with a kitchen that's clean without her even being a part of the equation, I'm telling you, now the response is different. I am the greatest husband that's ever walked the planet. And you just need to know, that's how she responds. She's like, you, I, I way over-married when I married you because, man, you cleaned the kitchen. She feels more loved than she could ever feel. Now, so some of you ladies in here, you might want to say amen to that and kind of encourage your guy here. Now, if I dare clean a toilet at my home, something amazing happens. <laughs> like, I'm telling you, she is like, you are the sexiest man on the planet. It is like, listen, if Lysol is on my hands, it is like Axe body spray being all over me. I'm telling you. <laughs> In fact, I'll just tell you, men, if they release Axe body spray that's Lysol scented, buy it up. I'm telling you. She is like, you're the greatest person ever. This is amazing. So what do I do? I clean the kitchen. I clean some toilets every now and then. Why? Because she's OCD? Because she is. No. Is it because I feel this obligation? No. Is it because I'm thinking, well, listen, she's just going to expect it of me. She'll be mad if I don't, so I better just go do it. Is it because I like cleaning the kitchen and toilets? No. 
I do this because I know that this says I love you to her. And so because I love her, I am inclined now to do things that are not my natural disposition. Because I know in doing those things, I am saying I love you to the one that I love. So in doing the things that I naturally wouldn't want to do, I delight in doing them because of what they are communicating and expressing to the one that I love. You see, the reason it's important that we understand it's not about duty driven by law, but it's devotion motivated by love is that when we come to love and to savor God and we grow in Him, it stirs our affections for Him so that when we see His commands, we see His rules, we don't look at them and go, well, I've got to do these things. No, no, we, we look at those and say, I'm going to delight in those things. Why? Because in doing these things, I'm expressing love to God. And because I'm expressing love to God, now I'm delighting in doing these things. They're not duty, it's delight. This is why Jesus says what He does at the very end. He says, he says, here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he says, this is the great and first commandment. And, and, and he says, in these, all the law and the prophets hang. Right? Well, why does he say that? How is that possible? How is all the law and prophets fulfilled in loving God with all you have? It's because when I love God with all that I have, I don't want to bow a knee to anything but him. When I love God with all I have, I don't want to take his name in vain. When I love God with everything, I don't want to worship things that have been made in creation. I want to worship the creator. When I, when I, I want to have a reverence in my heart toward him. Why? Because I love him. So in loving him, it postures my heart in a way where now I can walk in the other commands. And now I am walking in a devotion to him that's motivated by love, not duty. And this is so key for us in the room this morning. Say, so what does this have to do with the home? I mean, this is pivotal for our home. Parents, I want you to hear me say this. The, the aim for you as, 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 Christian, as a Christian family and a Christian home, the aim is not for you to establish a home where God's law is obeyed. Now, we want to obey the commands of God in our homes. Amen? But the aim for you is not to establish a home where God's law is the law. I mean, we're going to follow the law. And we're going to do what God says. And by God, this is the way our family is going to be. And Because we can do that as moms and dads. We can put framework and we can force our kids into a mold. And it can be duty-driven, law-focused. These are the rules. And this is what we do because we're a Christian family. And this is what Christian families do. You can establish that type of home. But listen, establishing that type of home is not going to cultivate a heart that loves God. And that is not the aim. You can create an environment like that and no one in your home love God. See, God's desire for us is not to just to have the law as the aim. Are we going to follow the rules of what God has? No, no, no. Our goal and, and God's desire for us as families is to cultivate a home where God is savored, where he is loved, where we marvel at the redeeming work that he's done for us, where Jesus, we see him and we recognize this is what he's done. And because our family loves Jesus, this is how we live and this is what we do. And these are the commands that we follow, not because this is what Christians do. It's because we love the one that redeems redeemed us. This is what God wanted for us. This is his aim for our homes. This is his vision for us. So parents, let me just help you and remind you once again, you can't create that. You can foster that. This can only be created. You can't create this in your own heart. You can't, you can't create this. You can foster it, but you can't create it. You say, what do you mean? 
Loving God this way can only happen through the finished work of Jesus. It is, it is when we understand the gospel and the gospel gives us a new heart that now beats for God. We can't love God apart from Jesus. We can't love God with everything. This is why we talk about us loving God. Parents, listen to me. Grandparents, listen to me. Everyone in the room, listen to me. Listen, your loving God doesn't start with you loving God, but rather you responding to God loving you. This is why in 1 John, uh, we are told this. This is, and this is love, not that you love God, but that he loved you. And he sent his son to be the propitiation, to die in your place, to take the wrath of God for you. This is love. It starts with God loving you. And this is why I contend, and I'll continue to contend, that I don't believe that Christianity, when you understand it, fits in what we commonly think of as religion. Because religion typically are the steps that you take to reconcile the gap between you and God. But the gospel is the steps that God took to reconcile the gap between you and God. So, so what happens in our home when the gospel becomes priority, when the gospel radically transforms our hearts as parents and grandparents and followers of Jesus, and as it begins to transcend into the homes and the lives of our kids, here's what happens. When we understand we have been made new by Jesus, that he has transformed our life, not because we've earned it, but because he loved us when we were unlovable, that Jesus followed the commands we couldn't follow, died the death we should have died, resurrected to give us life, and when we trust in this, our hearts are made alive, and now we want to serve the one that died in order to save us. And now, in response to his love, we love him back. That's the essence of Christianity. And this has got to be the foundation of our home. It's not duty driven by law. It's devotion, motivated by love. Which leads me to number two. The second truth I want you to see is this. And this is, this is powerful. It's simple, but it's powerful. Listen, you cannot impart what you don't possess. You can't impart what you don't possess. This is what he says in verse number 6. And look at verse 6 and then first of verse 7. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be upon your what? Right, say it like you have a heart, okay? These words should be upon your heart. There we go. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Now let me just blow your mind for a second. Six comes before seven. Right? Let me say it another way. The instructions of verse 6 come before the instructions of verse 7. Don't miss the order. And these words, these commands that I'm giving to you today shall be upon your heart. It starts with you, mom and dad. It starts with you, grandma and grandpa. These words, these things that God is imparting should be upon your heart. Listen, then you shall teach them diligently to your children. Listen, you cannot impart what you do not possess. And this is one of the great dilemmas that we have in the church today. He says these commands should be upon your heart. What does it mean to be on our heart? Last week, Shane did it, gave a great definition of what the Bible refers to when it refers to the heart. Would you listen to what it, his definition was? He says the heart is the hub of emotions. Our desire producer, the center of our being, the heart represents the locus of our feelings, desires, and emotions. In other words, when he says, parents, grandparents, these words that I command you today should be upon your heart. They should be the center of your life. They should be the center of your emotion and feelings. There should be a genuine relationship with God and his word where you're growing in this and you're submitting to this and you're walking in this. And let me just help you. If you've got young kids or no kids, 
I'm going to help you. If you've got kids that are old enough to have conversation with you, you're going to know and say amen to this. Here's what I didn't know before I had kids and I'm well aware of now. Our kids are born with a sixth sense. They have a military-grade hypocrisy sniffer. I'm telling you right now. Like, they can see. Like, we think we're fooling them as parents. We ain't fooling them. Like, they see right through us. Man, they, they know when we're faking it. They know when we're not genuine. They know that. And listen, I'm telling you right now, some of you are like, man, you know it. Like, I feel guilty now because my kids kind of, you know, they, they know I'm not walking or not doing or whatever, and I'm trying to lead and guide. Listen, try being the one that's preaching to people about how to raise your kids when your kids are sitting in the audience every week. Like, some of y'all always go, Pastor, we love the fact that you're so authentic. I've got to be authentic because my kids will call me out when I get home. I might as well confess it in front of you because I'm going to have to admit it in front of them. Right? And so they, 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 here's the reality. Our kids know it. We can't, listen, you can't impart what you don't possess. You can't give something away that you don't have yourself. And one of the reasons, listen to me, that we're seeing the studies show us 80% of students leave the local church that were raised in church. They leave the local church by the end of their freshman year in college. Now, why is that? There's maybe a number of reasons. I'll tell you the number one reason. Is because kids, for the most part, being raised in a Christian home, are being taught a faith that they have not seen transform their own family's life. They're seeing us tell our kids one thing but doing another. And they sniff right through the hypocrisy. And they grow up indifferent. And they say, you know what, if, if it didn't work for mom and dad, it ain't going to work for me. So parents, listen, here's the harsh reality. Let me help you. Here's the harsh reality. What you do is louder than what you say. What you do, the decisions you make, the priorities for your home, the order in which God fits into the equation of your schedule, all of those things. Listen, what you do will always, everybody say always, will always be louder than what you say. So you can preach and you can proclaim and you can lay the law down and you can say all of these things, but if there's not a genuine walk with Jesus in your life that you're modeling, that the gospel's big enough to transform you, it doesn't matter what you tell them Jesus can do in their life, they're not going to see it because they're not seeing it in you. This is massive for us to get and understand and listen, I want to help you with this. This is not about perfection. This is not about perfection. Some of you, like you're nervous right now because you're like, man, there are some inconsistencies in my life. So look at me. Parents, I want you to breathe for a minute. It's not about perfection. It's about pursuit. It's not about perfection. It's not about you nailing it every time as a father or you nailing it every time as a mother or as a grandparent or whatever it might be, the role that you play. It's not about, listen, it's about you being in pursuit, an authentic, genuine pursuit of Jesus. Because listen, you're going to fail. You're going to trip. You're going to fall. This is why you need the gospel. One of the greatest ways you can model the power of the gospel that could transform the life of your kids and your grandkids is for them to see the power of the gospel transforming you. And that's not possible if you're not honest about where you're struggling and where you're failing and where you need to grow so from time to time there, there needs to be honest conversation to say yeah I struggle there too I dropped the ball here 
Or you know, you're right, you're not seeing me pray like I need to pray or get in the word like I need to get in the word. You know what, I, Jesus needs to do a work in me. I'm asking Jesus to forgive that. Would you forgive that? And would you encourage, like, challenge me to stay in the word? What if your kids were a part of your journey and they're observing the gospel transform you and then they get to see how that works in their life? One of the most powerful things we could ever do for our kids is to look at them and say, man, I dropped it. I dropped the ball. Would you forgive me? I've asked Jesus to forgive me. He's at work in me. This is why I need Jesus. This is why you need Jesus. And all of a sudden, now there's this moment where Jesus becomes real to them because he's real to you. The problem with most of our lives, Jesus is a figure we study in a book or we learn about at a place, not a person we walk with daily. And so I'm going to challenge you. Listen, it's got to be upon your Heart. So here's a question I want you to wrestle with. And some of you don't have the guts, you don't have the courage to wrestle with this question, but for some of you, you do. If you have the courage, I want you to ask yourself this question. If my kids prayed like me, worshiped like me, studied God's word like me, forgave others like me, prioritized and loved Jesus like me, would they become the men and women that experience the fullness of what God has for their life? In other words, if my children duplicated the relationship that I have with Jesus, would they become the men and women who experience the fullness of blessing that God has for their life? Can I, can I just be honest with you? I mean, if my kids modeled the prayer life that I've had the last two or three months, I would feel like a failure as a father. If they modeled the, the, the urgency of God's word each day in my life, I mean, I would feel like I'm, I'm, I've failed spiritually because they would not be engaging God's word near enough. So as parents, we, we've got to understand, you will reproduce who you are. And we're not calling you, and God's not calling you to perfection, but be in a mad pursuit. And then let your kids in on the journey. Are you with me? Here's number three. Here's number three. Write this down. This is a big one. All right, intentional discipleship happens through ordinary moments. Intentional discipleship happens through ordinary moments. Look what he says, verse 7. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. This teach diligently is really one word in the Hebrew language. It's important because there's a picture here. Some of you in your Bible, you may have the word impress them on your children. And that's kind of a, a better image here. Impress doesn't mean you've got to be impressive. Impress means you're making a mark. Like you're, you're making an indention. You're making an effect. The, the, the word could, could, is kind of inscribe, could be a phrase. Another one I think is really a better mental image of what he says here. Teach them diligently to your children. Some about the intentionality and the urgency of discipling our kids. It's the picture of someone. How many of you guys have ever sharpened a knife on a whetstone? Anybody done that? That would have been the mental image that was given here. When he says teach them diligently, the idea is when you sharpen a knife, you press onto the stone and you very carefully are running the blade across the stone so that you're sharpening the blade. It's becoming more and more useful. This is the type of intentionality he's trying to explain to us is how we disciple the next generation. It's like our, our kids are the blade and the word of God is the whetstone and we're, 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 we're making an impression. We're, we're making a difference. We're sharpening them spiritually. This, this is, it takes time. 
And it takes intentionality. And this is what we're called to do. You don't raise up men and women who love the Lord and to walk with Him in, 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 in their life without intentional focus on discipleship. Instruction in God's Word. Guiding them. Speaking truth into their lives. I think far too often what we do is we teach them diligently how to swing the bat. We teach them diligently how to shoot the jump shot. We teach them diligently how to prepare for the SAT. Because those things are the highest of priority. So we spend a lot of time like this with our kids in those areas, right? But what God's called us to do is to teach them diligently what it looks like to walk in the ways of God, to savor Him and to love Him and to know Him. And listen, that takes intentionality. You say, how do we do this? How do we do this? Through the ordinary routines of life. Look what he says here in the verse, the words that follow in verse 7. He says, and you shall talk about them, the commands of God, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus. You should talk about them when you sit at your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You hear what he's saying here? It's the ordinary. I think so many of us as parents and grandparents, we are looking for the spectacular when disciples are made in the simple we are looking for those aha moments where the lights come on. And, man, and I thank God for those moments. We've had them in our home where it's just like, man, we go in spiritual hyperdrive. And, man, God just pours his blessing. And those are awesome. But here's what I've learned and here's what the scripture is pointing us toward. Most of the impact we will make in the hearts and lives of our kid, kids do not happen in those spectacular moments where it's like the Shekinah glory of God fills the room. It's more on the way to the school or when we pick them up and we're sitting in carpool and when we're trying to get out of the traffic and everybody is yelling and screaming and all of the chaos of life, this is where those discipleship moments happen. It's at the dinner table when they're talking about the relationship that's strained. It's when the stress of the test is overwhelming them. Of course, we're looking at them going, what do you have to be stressful for? But they're pouring their heart out. It's in those conversations where they're in a, in, a, in, a, in a dilemma. They don't know what to do in this relationship. It's that in those ordinary moments. I love this when he says, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. So let me kind of reframe that for you. Where do you make disciples? On your way to school. Leaving the ball game. Those quiet moments in the evenings when you put them to bed and rather than giving them some little cliche prayer that Mimi taught you and she was taught to by her Mimi and just kind of watering down and making this little nice moment but it's not making an impactful moment of you actually having a five minute conversation with the heart of your kid and praying for them before they go to bed and reminding them they can rest tonight because Jesus is enough or when they get up before they leave you kind of just kind of drop little opportunities praying for them before their tests cuddling up before they leave the house just simple moments of life making the investment. Parents, listen to me. If you'll leverage the ordinary, listen, you're going to see extraordinary things happen in the heart of your kid. So what advice do you give them when the teacher is not being fair? How do you navigate them through it? Is it get on the phone? I'm going to call the principal and blow him up, and we're going to talk with him, we're going to get in this, and man, gonna, and all of a sudden they're seeing ungodliness spew for you, or do you lose an opportunity to say, you know what, hey, in life you're going to have authority in you that you've got to submit to even when they're not worthy of being submitted to. So let me kind of show you some scriptures that can navigate how you can pray for your teacher if she's being ungodly, if he's being unfair. 
So are we going to leverage that for an opportunity to disciple? Or are we going to walk in ungodliness of the culture and just try to bail them out rather than teach and growing them through that? When you're in that conflict with that friend, are you going to go, I'm going to call her mom, I'm going to tell her, I'm going to give Facebook, and we're going to have this thing out. Or, or do we say, you know what, hey, let's pray for them. Let's ask what, what is happening in their life that we need to be asking Jesus to do a work in. It's the ordinary moments of life where disciples are made. Leverage the moment. Here's number four. Number four. It's this. God's word, God's word must control our hands, consume our minds, and cover our homes. God's word must control our hands, consume our minds, cover our homes. Look what he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, you shall bind them, what? The, the commands of God, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus. You shall bind them as signs in, on your heart, and you shall be, they shall be as frontless between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, this is an interesting verse of Scripture because in the Jewish culture, they embraced, this was figurative language that's given, but they embraced it literally. So they have boxes that are kind of strapped to their forehead with verses in it. They had uh, strings tied and different ornaments on their hands reminding them of different scriptures. They nailed little boxes with scripture onto their doorposts. So, and that's not wrong to do that. But the point wasn't, hey, wear this, nail this, tie this. The point was God's word should control how, how you use your hands. What you do with your life should be controlled by God's word. Why is it on your mind? Put this on your, on your forehead. It's God's word should consume our minds so we meditate on the things of God. We memorize the scripture. We we process the world, world and the things around us through the truths that are in our mind that God has in our heart. We, we, we let God's word be the uh, covering of our home that our decisions are made and our priorities are demanded and our, our life is arranged around what God's word says is right and wrong and true and what should be first or not. Th this is the aim. It's God's word being the authority of our life that guides us in every area of our life. And parents, can I just help you with this? Here's what I, I'm, I'm so fearful of. I'll just use one artist, and there could be many people in our culture. It's what's, what's, what's scary to me is that the, the, what, how we're guiding our kids through life, we are more influenced by Taylor Swift than we are from Jesus Christ. of what behavior is acceptable and how we interact with the world around us, how we see ourselves, how we see the world around us. We're being more influenced by popular culture than by the truth of God's word. And listen, it's not just the students. It's moms and dads. It's you making these decisions. God's word should be the foundation. God's word should be what consumes our minds, that informs our decision and controls what we do with our life. Is God's word the highest priority for you? Is it the authority of your life? You need to wrestle with this. Is seeing your kids love Jesus and know Jesus and pursue him, is it ultimate in your life? Or is it, man, I just want them to be successful and I also want them to love Jesus? But your focus is given to the first, not the second. It's amazing to me. You ask a family. Don't, don't miss this. Listen to this. You ask a family, how are the kids? How are the kids doing? We either respond with good or not good, and then we give our reasons why. Oh, man, things are good right now. 
Man, you, I, we've been talking about Johnny is graduating and we had the university that we've been talking about. I went there. My wife went there. We're, we've been fired up. And guess what? He just got accepted into the university. And, man, life is good in Johnny's life because of this. And, man, look, Kate, Kate, man, she is, uh, she, English was struggle for her. She was a C. And then, man, mid-semester she got up to a B. And, man, I think for it's over with, she might even have an A in the class. Man, things are just trending well. And, man, our other one, man, he, he, he was trying to get on the basketball team. He got on the varsity. And, man, man he is just a powerhouse out there. We love going to. Tuesday and Friday and watch these games. It's just amazing. Life is good. Our kids are great. Or no, it's not so great. Because Jill, she, we, we wanted her to get into college. She get, didn't get accepted because her grades. We've been telling her for years that she should work harder and she's not going to get in. But now she's not getting in. And we don't know what her future is going to be like because she's not getting in. And then, man, we were trying to get varsity. All we got was JV. And, man, so uh, he's, you know, Brian's a little bummed right now, but he's going to make it through it. We just kind of, I mean, life is hard right now. Things aren't really as good as they need to be. This is how typically we make the evaluation. What if it looked like this? How are the kids? It's amazing. Life is good at this house. Now, the grades are terrible. English is a bomb. And we, we wanted varsity. I mean, we're not even, we're freshmen, right? Like, we're not even getting the JV yet. But he's working hard. I'm proud of him. But, man, so, so that, that's all right. And what about the college thing? I don't think he's going to get in. But, man, life is unbelievable. And here's why. Because in the midst of all of this, Jesus is doing something in the heart of my kid. I can't explain. Relationships are in crisis. Grades are struggling. But I'm seeing Jesus do something in the heart of my little boy or, or in my girl. And, man, he's just doing it. And they've, they've been journaling. And they've been praying. I mean, there's a hunger for God's word. We've had some really great spiritual conversations. Man, there's a lot of struggles that we have, and we're going to work on those. But, man, life is good. Jesus has been so gracious to my kids. Or, oh, man, life isn't going good. Man, life could be better. And your friends go, wait a second, I thought they got accepted at the college, and I thought the grades were up, and I thought, man, didn't they score the most points at the game the other night? Yeah, yeah, they did all of that, but man, man, they're drifting from Jesus. There's a lot of great things happening in my home, but I'm thinking that it's distracting us from what's most important. I, I'm not seeing little Johnny as interested in the things of God as we hoped for, and I'm not seeing my little girl making good decisions, and I just don't know where Jesus is at work. I, I just, things aren't good right now. What if, what if, parents, grandparents, that's the way we begin to evaluate life? Because here's the responsibility we have, and do not miss this. Most of us parent toward college and career, and that is not the aim of parenting. We are not parenting toward college and career. We are parenting toward life in Christ and eternity. And I want my kids, you want your kids to experience the abundant life that Christ has for them. And it might be the complete opposite of every dream and every plan and every hope you've had for your kids. But are you willing to sacrifice that for your kids experiencing a life on mission, a life of pursuing Jesus with all that they have. We've got to change how we measure success. Say, I want that. Okay, so remember this. Christianity is not about duty driven by law. It's devotion motivated by love. Which means if you're going to have a house that lives like that, 
you got to remember you can't impart what you don't possess. And this demands as parents that you are intentional with discipleship by leveraging the ordinary moments of life so that God's word becomes what controls your hands, consumes your minds, and covers your home. We put that together. We're in a great position to pray like crazy for Jesus to do something amazing in our houses. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you to stand and then bow your heads. We're going to worship for a moment. Some of you today, as a parent, I'm just asking you, let's just, just bow our heads, be reverent. Some of you as parents need to confess today and admit today you can't impart what you don't possess because you've never experienced a genuine relationship with Jesus. But as parents and grandparents, today is the day for you to be saved. You say, I want this for my kids, but I realize that I don't have it myself. Well, then today, confess your sin. Trust that Jesus died and resurrected to save you. Give him your life. Let him transform your heart. And then you will have everything you need in Christ to begin to impart that to your children. So we're going to have decision encouragers here. I would love for you to come and respond and talk to them and pray with them. Here's the second thing I want you to wrestle with. If you know Christ, here's the question for you. Are you pursuing him in a way that you want to see reproduced in the hearts of your kids? Is the priorities of your home, the, Jesus the great love of your life? If the answer is no, there are two responses to that. The first is to repent. That's the easy one. Confess that to the Lord. Ask him to reorder your life. Ask him to rearrange things that are inside of you. So repent from that. Here's the second thing. Confess that to your kids. Let them see the gospel at work in you and sit down and say, we're going to do some things differently and it's going to start in me and here's kind of what our home's going to look like from going forward. And just confess that to your kids. The first is easy. The second is hard. But it could be so impactful. What would it look like for you? to have that conversation, to start reordering your family. Let's wrestle with this this morning. Jesus, we love you, and I pray now as we respond in worship, you would speak to us, move in our hearts, in Jesus' name. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.